Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Well, I came dressed for a party this morning. Got a purple shirt on, as Phyllis does as well. We are matching. And I mean, when you really stop to think about it, this is a party. I mean, what greater party in town is a Christian worship service? A people who have been liberated from Satan and from sin and from the very depths of hell. Man, this is a party. So we can smile in here just as we have all morning long. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. God had tested Abraham. God said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And I mean, that's our message this morning. How even though Abraham was a man of extraordinary faith and extraordinary confidence in the power of God, God put Abraham, his faith, and his trust in the God who he said that he believed into the test. It's the Hebrew word nasah. And what nasah means, it means to try something. But it can also mean an adventure which will prove and determine a substance of something. In this instance, the substance of Abraham's faith in an unseen God. Well, we got to understand that this was not just a one-time thing as God puts Abraham to the test. This wasn't some lab experiment that God decided to do for just one time with a guy who had more faith than anybody else. Yes, God tested Abraham. And yet, as we will also see, if we look very closely at our lives, God just as easily also puts you to the test. God puts me to the test sometimes. Many times in the past, God has put us to the test. And it's not going to be the last time. I can only speak about my own adventure in life with God, but sometimes I pass the test and I rejoice with God. Sometimes I flunk the test. And I learn from it as a result. I think it's also worth mentioning here this morning that It's not always a test. I'm not standing up here and saying that every uncomfortable situation that we encounter in life is God putting us to the test. I don't believe that's true at all. But what I am saying is that sometimes it is a test. I'm also not saying that it is the exact same identical test that Abraham underwent in Genesis. As God tests us, it's not always some big elaborate event and scenario. Yes, sometimes it is life's hardships that are putting us to the test. Sometimes it is the absolute worst day of our life when God is putting us to the test. But other times it might just be the everyday annoyances and grievances of this life that that God is using as a test in our life. 
You know, those instances where we go from being Christ-like to growing horns in about three seconds. You know, those spiritual immaturities of, of ours that we all undergo. I'm also not saying that it is a time of temptation. That is a different deal. God will never tempt us. God will never try to get us to sin. God never allows us to be tempted, but he does allow us to be tried and to be tested. And I have often found that many times of testing have come after I had said very loud to God that I had repented of something. Every time that I've ever walked the aisle on a Sunday morning and said, pray for me, I, I've repented of this, but I need strength. Man, you better believe that in the days ahead. I found myself in these unforeseen situations where, where those words were being put to the test. And I discovered very quickly whether or not I truly had repented of that thing. Now I know that this looks very easy to most people. I'm sure that it looks like you just wake up and roll out of bed and just riff off the top of your head on Sunday, but that's not how it works exactly. It's hard putting a message together every single week. You gotta study, you gotta pray, you gotta edit it about 27 times. In comparison, all of that is the easy part. Really the hard part is after the message has been proclaimed and you're going out into a world and that's going to be put to the test. Sometimes I have lived exactly what I said and other times in, in past years, I flunked the test very quickly. When we've been critical of another person, when we said things like, can you believe so-and-so did that? If it were me, I never would have done something like that. I'm so glad so-and-so is here to have heard a message like that this morning because they really needed that message. Well, anytime we hear anything like that coming out of our mouths, we should probably get ready. And that's because chances are an even greater challenge is just about to come our way. Or now we're going to be the ones up against the flames. It's not going to be so easy for us. Luke chapter 8 and verse 13, Jesus gives a parable of a sower, and he's asked exactly what it means. And in his explanation of this parable, he says in Luke 8 and verse 13 that, and the ones on the rock who the seeds of the gospel are sown, they are the ones who hear the word and who receive it with a spirit of joy. And yet these have no roots. Yes, they believe for a short while, and that's good, and that's wonderful. And yet in a time of attesting, Jesus says, these fall away very quickly. Now, it's worth noting that in the Greek, in that word, as Jesus says, a time of um, attesting, that can mean a temptation. In that instance, it is speaking about Satan trying to get us to sin, perhaps. And yet that word can also mean an affliction, an experiment, an adventure that will determine where our faith really is, where our allegiance and our love truly is. And that speaks about God as he puts his people to the test on other occasions. And even though every one of us will undergo a time, many times, of God putting us to the test, I'm glad to say this morning that we have some help. 
And that's because in our text, as well as elsewhere, Abraham shows us, he gives us an example of how to respond to God's times of testing that we undergo. Well, Abraham was 75 years old when he encountered the adventure of God telling him, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to make your name great, and and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And yet the other half of that adventure that God, he presents him with is, you also need to leave your country. Leave your family, leave your comfort zone, leave everything that has ever felt comfortable to you before, and just go that way. I mean, God doesn't even tell him where he's going. He just says, I want you to leave this place and go until I I say to stop. You know, we don't even know if this was really a time of testing for him or not. Maybe he was eager to get away from his extended relatives. I'm sure we've never been there before. (laughs) You know, we've never wanted to get away from any relatives before. But maybe Abraham did, you know. Maybe, maybe not. You know, I don't know, but... He left Ur of the Chaldeans, though. Now, that means nothing to our ears. It's just some ancient city that no longer exists. It's, it's lying in ruins hundreds of years, we know. And yet, in those days, though, Ur of the Chaldeans was the most civilized, advanced place in that region, perhaps, maybe even in the world at that time. So Abraham is leaving behind, if he goes, his comfort and his convenience. I mean, I've known many Americans who said that their worst nightmare was, was even leaving America for just a few minutes, let alone however long Abraham would have been going. It's so human to panic, you know, and to try to escape when life gets uncomfortable for us. If Abraham wanted to, he could have said, you know, God, could, you know, can't we do this at a better time? This really isn't a convenient time. I've got my grandkids, you know, I mean, God, can't we do this like five or six years down the road? He could have said, well, where are we going? I mean, listen, I'm not going anywhere until I know where you're bringing me. And yet Abraham says none of that. Here's how Abraham responds. The very next words in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, it says, so Abraham went just as the Lord had told him to do. I mean, there's no delay. There's no resistance whatsoever. God says it, and Abraham's like, okay, let's go right now. Well, Abraham is now 108, 109, 113 years old, something like that. And it says in our text in Genesis 22 and verse 1, and now God nasad Abraham. God put Abraham to the test. And of course, this is in reference to the adventure of, okay, Abraham, here is Isaac. Here's the son who I promised you six times in the text that I would give to you. Waited 25 years to hold him in your arms. And through him, an entire nation is going to rise up long after you're gone. And yet the other half of that adventure is, and now I want you to climb a mountain. I want you to strap Isaac to an altar. And then I want you to reach and to grab a knife and to bludgeon him and to light him on fire. And if you could get that done for me by tomorrow morning, that would be great, Abraham. And it just amazes us all these years later. 
you know, in his love and compassion for Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham goes back and forth with God all night. God, what if it's 45? What if it's 40? What if it's 20? What if it's 15? What if it's 10? And yet not on this occasion, though. You know, I always try to imagine what I would have done in that spot. I guess you never really know unless you are the one in that spot, but it would have been so human to delay. Resistance, avoidance is just so utterly human. Where Abraham could have said, God, you, you made a promise to me. I mean, God, we had a deal. I mean, this doesn't even sound like you, God. I mean, are you becoming like all these foreign gods in the world who require child sacrifice? Can I still be a believer of yours without having to do something this drastic? Abraham could have said, well, what about Ishmael? Can't we offer him instead? Because after all, Ishmael is not according to a promise of yours. God, couldn't you just kill me instead if it means my son living? And yet, once again, though, here is how Abraham responds. And Gen here I'm in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 3, where the very next words are as follows. Where it says in the text, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place at which God had told him to go. And once again, what we see is no delay. We see no resistance from Abraham. He doesn't try to hide from the presence of God like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't try to hide from God or to run away from him like Jonah when God said, go to Nineveh. But rather, Abraham wakes up early. He sets out and he takes Isaac before the sun has even risen in the sky. That doesn't mean that he slept the night before, though. That doesn't mean that he was holding his boy all night long. It doesn't mean that he wasn't vomiting in the bushes every 15 minutes. And yet Abraham, I believe, as, as he spent a sleepless night just musing over this, with each and every agonizing step that he took closer to Mount Moriah, I believe that, that Abraham remembered. Abraham remembered in the past how utterly outlandish it sounded to his ears as God made a promise to him that you're about to have a baby boy. And he was 75 and his wife was 65. Abraham remembered how they just threw their heads back and shrieked in laughter. And what God had said, and how for those next 24 years, they just laughed and laughed and laughed about that. And yet then, I believe Abraham remembers when, when he held his newborn son in his hundred-year-old hands. This boy named Laughter, because God had brought laughter to them, named Isaac, who came from a 90-year-old womb. I believe that Abraham remembered that back then God kept a promise, even one that made absolutely no sense to them. And Abraham remembered that God always has the last laugh. But I believe more than anything, though, what Abraham had remembered, though, 
on his journey to the mountain with his son is that if God could keep a promise like that to me, even in a situation that hurts, that that is not a laughing matter whatsoever, even though this makes absolutely zero sense, I believe that somehow Isaac will still have a nation come out from him. I guess God is just going to have to have me kill him and then raise him back from the dead. I I have no idea how this is going to work, but if God said it, then I believe it's going to happen. Many years ago, Francisco, in his commentary on this text, says that it was not until Abraham acted upon his faith, did that faith come to fruition. Until he lifted the knife over his son, his ultimate surrender to God had not yet occurred. And so we see that faith is not just a nice attitude towards God. It is full submission to his will. And to will faith in our heart is not enough, but but the act of faith, he writes, is the ultimate test. And as we all know the story, just before he's about to strike Isaac, a voice cries out to him, now we know that you fear God. And a ram is found, all of a sudden appears, and it's caught, and that is the sacrifice instead. But I mean, is it really any wonder that Abraham is called a friend of God? And I mean, when our faith is put to the test just as hard, when nothing in our life makes sense, when not even God himself is making sense to us anymore, now the question is, will we be called the friend of God? And so, yes, we can respond to the testing of our faith as Abraham did, but other times, though, we respond as the ancient Israelites did. What I'm referring to is the adventure of, hey, we've spent three consecutive days in a wilderness without any water. I mean, how in the world are we going to get water in the middle of a desert? Well, they find water, but it is water that is not clean, and it's bitter, and they can't drink that water. And it's a very legitimate concern. God, (laughs) how are we going to get water out here? And yet in Exodus 15, verse 25, it says, And then the Lord nasod them. God put their faith to the test in the process. And sure enough, God miraculously provides sweet water for them. And then after that, he leads them by 12 springs of water at Elam, where they spend the night. So it's like, okay, I guess God's got us after all. He just, man, look at all this water he just has provided for us. And yet then it seems like just like 20 minutes later, it would seem to us as we read it. Immediately comes the adventure and a time of testing of hey, we're getting very hungry out here. How are we going to get food in the middle of a desert? And I mean, they panic. They explode in negativity. And they say things like, would that we had just died in Egypt rather than God and Moses bringing us all the way out into this desert to kill us? It says that the whole entire congregation of Israel grumbled against God. Well, God provides bread for them. And it's like, okay, well, I guess God has us. 
And before we can even blink our eyes, though, after this comes yet another adventure of, hey, God, we are thirsty. How in the world are we ever going to get water in the middle of a desert? Part two. It's like they have completely forgotten what God has just done for them. And they grumbled and they complained and they quarreled. Moses, why did you bring us all the way out to Egypt just to kill us and our children? So a bunch of them get together, have a little men's business meeting, and they say, well, we're just going to kill Moses and go back into slavery. Man, that sounds like a men's business meeting, but... And so after all of this grumbling and negativity and failing one test after another, finally Moses says something that is quite different. Where Moses says in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 5, Why do you not saw the Lord? Why are you putting God to the test? And I mean the Bible is full of people who try to put God to the test. That never works. Only one time in the entire Word of God in the book of Malachi does God say, go ahead and put me to the test. But other than that, though, God is never to be put to the test. And I'll tell us why. It's because for 40 years, the Israelites were eyewitness to one divine act of God's miracles after another. For four decades, they received one act of divine providence after the other. God gave them every single thing that they needed and so much more. The evidence was everywhere. And yet as they put God to the test, what they're saying is, is God with us or is he not? What they were communicating to the heavens was, God, if you really are God, we're going to need to see a little more evidence of this. It would be like a security guard stopping Walt Disney at Disneyland in 1956 and saying, yeah, we're going to need to see some ID. It's like, what are you talking about? I was one of the guys who, who created Mickey Mouse. My name is on this park. My signature is on your shirt. What do you mean you need some identification? I'm Walt Disney standing in Disneyland, you know? And I just imagine God thinking, um, you need more evidence of who I am? Um, I'm God, first of all. Good to meet you. <laughs> I knew who you guys were before there was even a world. I've been feeding you bread out of heaven, guiding you in a, in a, um, a fire by night and in a cloud by day. I gave you all the water you could drink and bathe in and play in. That was on Tuesday. I think if I were God in that situation, I would have said something like, you know, I, I am the God and the producer who brought you, oh, I don't know, the Red Sea standing up, you know, like, like 60 feet up in the air as I bailed all of your butts out of slavery. That's who I am. And I mean, is it really any wonder that Jesus received the same exact treatment, though, in the first century? As we see in the gospel, scribes and Pharisees putting Jesus to the test over and over again. Hey, Jesus, we're going to need to see a sign so that you can confirm whether or not you really are the Son of God. Well, I don't know. I fed multitudes of people from nothing, healing countless multitudes of sick and hurting people, walking on water. All the record books in the world not able to contain all the miracles that I did in three short years. 
brought people back from the dead? Would you like me to keep going? Or are you wanting to see another sign? I remember another time as Jesus is in the wilderness with Satan. And Satan has Jesus imagine in his mind that he has jumped up on the roof of the temple in Jerusalem. You can imagine a crowd forming. Everybody's pointing. Hey, what's that guy doing up there? And then Jesus is told by Satan to just imagine jumping up on the roof of there and saying, Hey, everybody, everybody look up here. I'm the son of God and I'm about to prove it to everybody. I'm going to jump off of this roof. And just before I hit the ground, Angels are going to come zooming down out of heaven. They're going to rescue me. You're all going to know that I am the Son of God. Well, clearly, that's not how Jesus persuades a broken world. Jesus persuades a broken world by His grace. He persuades hurting and dying people by dying on a cross out of His love for us, for our sins. We've been hearing a lot of evangelicals lately say, well, I don't need any medicine. I don't need to take any precaution in a pandemic that's killed over four and a half million people. I mean, I'm an American. I'm indestructible. Faith over fear, God's got me. God's not going to let me get sick. And perhaps that is true sometimes. They don't get sick sometimes. Other times it reminds me of a minister who I've read about many times in the news, many different ministers who brought up a poisonous snake on stage and said, it's going to bite me, but I'm not going to die. God's not going to let me die. Then he gets bit and he dies. <laughs> Other people get sick with COVID and sometimes they die, sometimes they don't. But when that happens, an unbelieving world takes a hundred more steps back. Well, they said that their God wasn't going to let that happen to him and it happened to him. So <laughs> I guess that means that there's not a God anymore. Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that, that everything that is recorded about the ancient Israelites in the Old Testament, how it was recorded for our own benefits, they were the examples of how not to respond when God has put us to the test. There, Paul says that, that we should not complain and be like them who put God to the test for 40 years. And at last, what Paul says is, let those who think they stand, let them take heed. Let them be very careful unless they fall in the time of the testing. And so sometimes we pass the test. Sometimes we do not pass the test. But I believe that we will pass more of these tests when we understand why God puts his people to the test in the first place. Deuteronomy chapter 8 the Israelites are almost to the promised land after all of these years. I mean, they can almost see it. And yet what they are told in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2 is, is that you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And then he says why. Here is why he was having his people put to the test. In order that he might humble you not sawing you and putting you to the test in order to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And God humbled you and he let you have hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And, and again, he says, why? 
in order that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but rather man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God tests our hearts and our minds in order to show us what is in them. God tests our faith in the agony of adversity because this is where smog, bootstrap method people become humble and poor in spirit. God puts our Christianity to the test in order to see if all of this is just an hour of our life on Sunday morning or if this is what our hearts are beating for every day, every moment of our lives. He wants to see if we are willing to bleed for this thing. To risk everything living for Jesus. God puts our love for him to the test. Because when God puts us to the test. This is where Jesus once again turns water into wine. In our souls. So as we bring all of this to a close this morning. I just want to say that. It's good to say that we want to be more like Jesus. It's wonderful when we say that we have repented of something. When we sing this world is not my home in this auditorium. But we just need to prepare ourselves. Because at some point those words are going to be put to the test. And so what I want to invite us to is just simply number one. Not to be caught so off guard by it. We probably still will be caught off guard but if we were not caught so off guard that we wouldn't even recognize that it was a test. Rather that we pray for the eyes and for a perception to, to understand that it's a test as it happens. And to live in such a way and to have a temperament that just kind of steps back from the rest of the pack and just slowly looks at the situations that come our way. And then lastly, that we remember the three most important words of Abraham's reaction to God's test. God says Abraham, and then Abraham says, here I am. That is the response of God's people right there. God appeared to Jacob in a dream. And Jacob said, here I am. God called out to Moses in the midst of a blazing bush, and he said, Moses said, here I am. The angel told Mary she would conceive the Son of God as a virgin. And Mary said, here I am. I am the servant of the Lord. God said, whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, here am I. Send me, O Lord. And I mean, when we live in a temperament of here I am, Lord, we're not panicking. We're not resisting what God is doing in our lives. We're not complaining. Even when we say, God, this makes no sense. I don't know where you are taking me here. Even when we say, God, this hurts so much. And I just don't get what you're doing in my life right now. And yet, just like Abraham, we say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. As a lot of you know, I worked at a food pantry in Florida for about five years. And one day there was a woman who was a volunteer in those days, and she was going through clothes that had, had arrived as donations. And she sees this old coat all of a sudden. 
She reaches inside and she feels something weird. Like, what is this? She pulls out $5,000. She feels something else and she pulls out $5,000 more. She feels something else and it's $5,000 more. And all of a sudden she's looking at $15,000 on the table right in front of her. There are no cameras in this room in those days. The other person who had helped her sort had just stepped out. And I don't, you know, if it were me, I would like to imagine that I would have not grabbed all that money for myself. But again, we don't know, and we don't know how we would react until we're in the moment. I mean, it would have been so human if she had said, man, I've got bills to pay. It's been three years since I've had a quality vacation. There's nobody looking at me right now, but how she responded, I mean, her, her instantaneous reaction was without blinking, grab the money, walk into my boss's office and say, this just came in, it's $15,000, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this, so let's get it out in, in a newspaper and let's see if anybody is going to come forward and claim it. Man, she passed the test, you know? She passed the test. Well, the money was never claimed. And the ministry I was working for was in the red that year. $15,000 in the red to be exact. And it was with that money that we had got back into the black in that year. I mean, talk about a God story. She passed the test. And afterwards, she saw a ram that was caught in a thicket by its horns. A ram of $15,000 that got us back into the black. My brothers and sisters, we don't know when it's going to be next. When God is going to put our faith to the test. We don't know. But God will put our faith to the test again. And how wonderful would it be if we were able to say... In those moments where it's no longer Abraham, but it says that after all of these things, God put Mary Ann to the test. God put Tracy and Walter and Jerry and David to the test. And then if it could be said of us that Mary Ann and Tracy and Lori and Jerry and all the rest of us said, Here I am, Lord. <laughs>